Podcastle episode 161 for June 14th, 2011. The Giant of Malheur Park by Maria Data. Rated PG. Hello and welcome to Podcastle. I'm Dave Thompson. Our question for the day is fantasy fiction feminine or masculine? Outside genre circles, and specifically talking to some of my close friends who enjoy reading but would rather watch TV or go to the movies, fantasy's all about the little dude with the hairy feet and the wands and staffs and big swords. Well, you get the picture. I'm talking about heroes, and generally, men. Whether they're bare-chested barbarians like Conan, smooth-talking rogues like Mad Mardigan, tough guy wizards like Harry Dresden, or even younger heroes in the process of coming of age, see Harry Potter or Jon Snow. They use hard, or at least mostly stiff things with pointy ends to get their points across. Not that there's anything wrong with that. In genre circles, you might hear that fantasy has girl cooties, that it's a genre dominated by women because they don't know how to write hard science fiction. Psst, don't tell that to Ursula K. Le Guin or Nancy Cress. Once upon a time, even, former Podcastle editor Rachel Swirsky, right around the time Podcastle hit episode 13, took a lot of heat because this here podcast seemed to be pushing a feminist agenda, including, but not limited to, publishing too many chicks. Interestingly, seven of those 13 feature stories were written by men. Contrast that to last year when Anna Schwind and I were editing, and all of a sudden we had the realization, huh. We've just run two solid months of stories by female authors. Oddly, nobody complained to us about it. I'm not 100% sure why that is, although I do have my suspicions. Is fantasy masculine or feminine? I'm not really sure. I'd venture to guess it's somewhere in between, but feel free to discuss it on our forum. Today's story is The Giant of Malheur Park by Maria Deda which was originally published in Kaleidoscope Number 10. It's got giants, and it's got feminism of a sort, so try not to get your whatevers in a wad. Let me tell you a little bit about Maria Data, by way of escape artist trivia. When I wrote requesting her bio information, she emailed me back with something that, honestly, made me totally lose my shit and look like the unprofessional ass that I probably am. She mentioned that she was the author of a certain pseudopod episode, Regis St. George. Holy shit, I said, you wrote that episode? I loved it, Lisa, Lisa, Lisa. She was very kind in her response. <clears throat> this story's totally different tone-wise, which of course is why I was so surprised, but well done. She lives in Oregon, where she's currently working on a novel, and her fiction appears in Strange Horizons, Giganotosaurus, and Brain Harvest. But really, people, read just St. George at Pseudopod. That's all you really need to know. You can find her online at mariadera.com. It's read for you by none other than my partner in crime, the real badass here at Podcastle, that epitome of excellence and professionalism herself, and most of all, my co-editor and very good friend, the amazing Anna Schwind. So welcome to the land of giants, kids, and enjoy the story. The Giant of Malheur Park by Maria Deida 
Everyone heard her land. Boom! The people in the modest houses surrounding Malheur Park felt the impact the most. Mrs. Edward, the elderly widow who lived alone, sat up in bed, clutching her chest. The recently divorced and retired Mr. Gomez, eating a late-night TV dinner, pointed his fork at the ceiling and cried out, Terrorist attack! Angie Wilson, single mother of four, gathered her children into the bedroom closet and made them pray. Mrs. Peña was taking a bath when the house shook in its foundation. Water sloshed over the bathtub's edge. The power went out. Selena! Fabiola! Mrs. Peña called to her granddaughters, who only minutes earlier had been watching television in the next room. When neither girl replied, the grandmother stepped out of the tub, slipped on her robe, and jammed her feet into an old pair of flip-flops. She stumbled out into the hallway, one wrinkled hand using the wall as a guide. In the living room, she found the front door open and the girls gone, only a brisk stream of air to greet her. I'm always running after esas muchachas, she said. She moved outside, making her way through the yard, blades of wet grass poking at her bare ankles. The air smelled sweet almost musty. It was early October, cold and breezy, and the night sky was clear. Mrs. Binya could just make out the rough silhouettes of her neighbors as they stood at their windows and in their front lawns, holding candles, watching, waiting. She overheard bits and pieces of their conversations. Phones aren't working. Cars aren't running. Radios and flashlights won't even turn on. No electricity anywhere in town. There's something in the park. The park. Mrs. Benya hurried across the street. As she entered the park, the ground dipped before her and she tripped. She tried to catch herself, but instead she fell against a wall, a moist wall of flesh. As soon as they heard what sounded like thunder, like something hitting the park at sonic speed, as soon as the power went out and the town went dark, Selena wanted to see what was going on. No, Fabiola said. It's probably not safe. Just stay here and we'll wait for Abuela. I don't want to wait for Grandma, Selena opened the front door. I can't see anything from here, she said, her voice fading as she ran outside. Fabiola followed her sister, but soon lost her in the even darker park. Selena, she called, but the younger girl didn't respond. All Fabiola heard were the neighbors talking, their chatter reminding her of the hungry squirrels who scolded her as she passed them on her walk to school. Selena, Fabiola said again, this time annoyed. If you don't answer me, I'm going home and telling Abuela. Just as she was about to give up and return to the little house, she stepped into something that was both soft and hard. A tree, she thought, reaching out and touching what felt like skin. Whatever it was, it emanated a sharp odor, a unique aroma of spice and tobacco and lavender. 
The smell triggered memories of Fabiola's mother, of how her mother had been before she disappeared. A deep longing that had been carefully hidden and almost forgotten now rumbled in Fabiola's breast. She wanted to be closer to that smell, to those memories. As her eyes adjusted to the darkness, Fabiola could see that what lay before her was a giant body, the body of a woman whose curves created a long silhouette, a gentle ripple along the earth's surface. As though in a trance, Fabiola climbed onto her, stepping first on the crook of the woman's great elbow, then crawling up the arm and to her chest. The heat from the giant's body transferred to her own slight frame. Fabiola placed her head against the woman's bare skin and listened. The pounding of the woman's heart was slower than her own. Lub-dub. Lub-dub. Lub-dub when it's beat. Steady and strong. Unlike Fabiola, Selena couldn't remember all the details of that night. When she awoke the next morning, she was surprised to find herself sitting in a gigantic human hand. She vaguely recalled lying down on something flat and firm and warm, lulled to sleep by a soft whooshing sound. Her throat tightened as she realized that it was the sound of blood rushing through the giant's veins. Selena shivered and zipped up her hooded sweatshirt. She looked at all the people standing around her, amazed that almost everyone in town had gathered at Malheur Park. She noticed that the men kept their distance from the body, complaining that the giant's odor was too pungent, too sour. One man even described the giant as grotesque and pornographic. For most of the women, however, the giant's scent had the opposite effect. It intoxicated them. I'm afraid, said a woman Selena had never seen before, but I just want to be near her, to touch her, to be a part of her. It struck Selena that these adults had forgotten about their children. Children who were now running wild in the street. Children who were alone, crying from inside their homes. At Angie Wilson's house, a young boy named Samuel stood on the front porch, yelling, Mom! Mom! Over and over. Mom! Mom! His words were drawn-out howls, and Selena felt what he felt. Her stomach turned. In grade school, her own mother had abandoned the girls, leaving them to fend for themselves until child welfare intervened. Within weeks, they were placed in a foster home where they lived for several months. When their grandmother was finally found, they were sent to live with her permanently in the small town of Malheur. The girls never saw their mother again, never learned what had happened to her. St
stupid parents, she said, as the boy's cries became hoarse and weak. Angie Wilson hadn't left her house all night, but in the morning she told her children to stay in the bedroom. From her living room window, she immediately saw the massive figure stretched out on its back, and when she opened the front door, the giant's wafting odor filled her with nostalgia, a desire for something she couldn't quite remember. She ran to the park where dozens of her neighbors and friends had already congregated. Touch it, every cell in her body sang out as she approached the giant. She dragged her hand along the woman's leg, walking the length of it. I think it's the Virgin Mary, Mrs. Edwards said to her. The old woman had somehow made it into the park, and she leaned heavily against her walker. Bullshit, said Mr. Gomez. He rode his bicycle slowly in circles on the street parallel to the park. Never heard of a giant virgin, let alone a naked one, he said. I don't know who or what she is, Angie said, but it feels right. How could she describe what she felt? Satisfied? Happy? No single word was good enough. Don't you see? She's of biblical proportions, Mrs. Edwards said to Mr. Gomez, the shrillness of her voice cutting through Angie's thought. So was Goliath, Mr. Gomez replied. We have our Goliath. Now where's our David? She's a miracle from God, I tell you. A miracle from God? Mr. Gomez laughed at the elderly woman. You don't deserve anything from God. About ten years earlier, Mr. Gomez's son Ralph had been shot dead by Officer George Connor on Mrs. Edwards' property. She had confused Ralph for an intruder, having forgotten that she'd asked the boy over to help her set up a bath chair. Mr. Gomez had never forgiven Mrs. Edward for her tragic mistake. And George had taken Ralph's death hard. So hard, in fact, that he hated the old woman and her ridiculous paranoia, her fear that he had allowed to snake its way into his heart. But mostly, he hated himself. He quit his job went back to school, and became a kindergarten teacher in another state. George had returned to Malheur only a few days before the giant landed in the park. His mother had called him to say that his Uncle Bill was dying. Even though George dreaded the return home, his uncle had been the only one who supported his career change and had helped pay his tuition. When he saw his uncle for the first time in almost a decade, he was surprised to see how shriveled up the old man had become. Hey, Uncle Bill, he said. Uncle Bill opened his eyes and stared at George. Well, you sure are a pretty girl. George glanced at his mother, who was standing in the doorway. She shrugged. No, Uncle Bill, he said. It's me, 
George. His uncle chuckled and closed his eyes. He passed away a few hours later. Today was to have been Uncle Bill's funeral, but the giant woman had changed everything. Or at least she gave the impression that the world was a different place. George watched Mrs. Edward give her little speech to Mr. Gomez, and he knew nothing in Malheur would ever change, not even if Jesus Christ himself came to town. Hey, Georgie, Angie said, walking up to him. They'd been friends since grade school, keeping up through letters and email. In high school, after George confessed to her that his mother had caught him wearing her dress and beat him with a high-heeled shoe, Angie said he could wear her dresses whenever he wanted, and she wouldn't tell anyone. Every Saturday night, alone in her room, she helped him get glammed up. Angie had suffered from alopecia at the time, which left her bald, so she had several wigs she'd wear to school. These she also let George borrow. His favorite gown was her prom dress, a white satin ball gown that he couldn't quite zip up all the way. He chose a wavy blonde wig to wear with it. Without a wig, Angie resembled a hairless angel. With the wig and some makeup, George resembled a very fat Marilyn Monroe. Now Angie gave him a hug, as though he was the best person she knew. George pinched his nose to keep from crying. This is unbelievable, isn't it? Angie said, gesturing at the giant woman behind her. What do you think will happen if she wakes up? I don't know, George said. I mean, what will happen if she never wakes up? What if she dies and begins decomposing? Just imagine the stench. From across the street, a man yelled, We'd have to blow her up like that beached whale over on the coast. He laughed. Boom! Meat everywhere! From her perch on the giant's clavicle, Fabiola listened to what her neighbors were saying. They were all wrong, she thought to herself. The giant wasn't the Virgin Mary or Goliath. She wasn't a gift from God or an omen of something bad to come. She wasn't dead, not a nameless carcass that was rotting in front of them. Fabiola wanted to scream at them, scold them, rejoice, and weep. She wanted to tell them that she knew the truth. She knew who the giant woman was but they'd never believe her. They'd only pity her when she said, This is my mother. A group of teenage boys had gathered at the edge of the park. Some stared fondly at the woman's naked body, but were kept at a distance by her peculiar smell. Several of the boys threw bits of gravel at the giant, confused and disturbed by her size and presence. One of them called out to Fabiola, What are you doing up there? Are you nuts? She'll eat you when she wakes up. Go away, she yelled back. A small stone whizzed through the air and hit Fabiola in the face. She cupped her cheek with her hand, her eyes watering from the pain. Another boy spit 
in the direction of the woman's head. Giant dyke, he said. Around noon, a number of women left the park in order to check on their children. They came back later with sandwiches and snacks for everyone. Selena was eating a peanut butter sandwich when she saw the giant's fingers twitching. She looked around, but no one else seemed to notice. What would happen if the woman woke up? Selena asked herself. Would the woman have some sort of message for them? Would she become their queen and make everyone in town her slaves? Or would she eat them, devouring each person like a carrot stick? Well, I'm not scared, Selena said. She'd fight the giant if she had to. She'd help get people to safety. She'd try to find a way out of town to seek help. She took a big bite out of her sandwich. Again, the woman's fingers spasmed, and Selena choked and surprised. She coughed, spitting out the dry, sticky bread, dropping what remained of her lunch to the ground. She tried to catch her breath, wondering what would happen next, hoping no one would get hurt. Fabiola's hands shook with anger as the boys laughed. Oh, how she wished she had a gun so she could kill anyone who tried to harm her mother. She imagined shooting at their heads, cursing at them as their brains splattered through the air. She left her place on the giant's collarbone and braced herself as she approached the other women. She suggested they line up around the perimeter of the park as a way to protect the giant from the men. But not one woman took her plan seriously. Angie Wilson simply dismissed her concerns. You worry too much, sweetie. These men aren't going to hurt her. They're just a little restless. And look! She pointed in the direction of the woman's hips. That's George Connor standing over there. He used to be a police officer, and he's not bothered at all by her. Fabiola stared at the chubby man who carried a platter of sandwiches. He was talking to her sister, saying something that made Selena smile. What happened to your cheek, sweetie? Angie asked, reaching out to touch Fabiola's face. Fabiola pushed her hand away. Nothing, she said. Angie squinted at her. Okay, but I think you really need to eat something, or at least have something to drink. I'm not hungry or thirsty, Fabiola said. Her voice sounded harsh, nasal. She knew she was being rude, but she didn't care. She had to find a way to protect her mother. I just need to talk to my sister, she said walking away from Angie. Hi, George said as Fabiola jogged up to them. Want a sandwich? No, I just need to talk to Selena. Oh, is that your name? Like the singer? George said, winking at the younger girl. Okay, then I'll leave you two alone. Take care of each other, he added. Fabiola frowned, annoyed by his comment. She had always taken care of Selena. Always. I don't like him, she said as soon as he was out of earshot. What happened to you? Selena asked, pointing at her sister's bruised cheek. They were throwing rocks at us, she said. 
That's why I wanted to talk to you. We have to protect her. She needs us. Was it those guys standing over there? Those assholes. Does it hurt? Do you want me to tell George? He used to be a cop and he could talk to them. Listen to me, Selena. Don't you recognize her? Fabiola said. It's Mama. Look at her, Selena. It's our mother. She watched her sister's face for a response, but Selena's expression didn't change. She merely sucked in her breath and then exhaled. Are you insane? Selena asked. That's not our mother. Our mother's dead. No one knows for sure she's dead, so don't even say that. Don't be like that. Fabiola clenched her hands into fists. You just don't remember her, but I do. I recognize her, and I always knew she'd come back if you'd only look at her, Selena. She pointed to the giant. The dark hair, the dark skin, the way the nose turns up at the tip. She even has a mole on her right cheek. She smells like Mama. It's her, Selena. I'm telling you, she came back for us. Fabi, okay, Selena said quietly, sadly. Fine, I believe you, but let me show you something first. And then tell me if you still think this is Mama. Selena used all her strength to bend the giant's index finger. When the tip of the finger touched the palm, it created a powerful spark, a blast of heat that forced the girls to jump away from the woman. By now, it was late afternoon. The wind had picked up and a wave of black clouds collected in the sky. Fabiola and Selena watched as a helicopter circling the park was blown back by a strong gust of wind. It turned north, fighting to stay aloft when the engine cut out. The helicopter lost control, spinning, falling, disappearing behind a row of trees. It crashed, erupting in a loud explosion, dark smoke furiously billowing up from the site of impact. The pond, someone yelled. It hit the pond. People ran, some toward the helicopter, others away from it. It couldn't get away, Selena said. She closed her eyes for a brief moment, then opened them again. Where had her courage gone, she wondered. Like so many other things in her life, it had just vanished. I don't want to be here anymore, Fabi, she said. I want to leave. Why can't we leave? Where's Grandma? She's supposed to be with us. Her voice was so small that it surprised Fabiola. She'd never seen her sister so vulnerable before. We'll be fine, Fabiola said, taking Selena's hand in her own. As long as we're together, we'll be okay. We just need to stay here with Mama. The giant's fingers touched again, and a second spark this one stronger than the first, drove the girls even further away from the giant woman. The wind carried the girls' voices back to Mrs. Peña. 
She knew she should be with them to protect them. She saw the clouds gathering. A thunderstorm was coming and the park wasn't a safe place to be during a storm. But she couldn't make herself get up. She was just too tired, too tired to help them and too old to be chasing after teenagers. Besides, she reasoned, esas muchachas have been taking care of themselves since they were babies. Si Dios quiere, and as long as they stay together, they'll be all right. A hailstorm hit the park, and those who wouldn't leave took shelter under picnic tables or crouched deep within the fleshy crevices formed by the giant's limbs. Hail the size of marbles hit Mrs. Pena's face and body, leaving red welts on her skin. She knelt next to the giant's feet. The toes curled above her like rain gutters. Out of nowhere, George appeared. Ma'am, he said, you can't stay here. Yes, I can, she said. It's not safe. George grabbed her arms, trying to pull her to her feet, but she struggled against his grip. You let me go, George Connor, she said. We can't do anything now, and it's too late to make up for past mistakes. George released her arms, and she plopped to the ground. I'm sorry, he said. She was right. No matter what he did, no matter how many children he helped or people he saved, it couldn't make up for what he had done, for who he was. He knew that. He always had. But he couldn't remain inactive, buried under the weight of his guilt. He had to at least try to do something. Didn't he? George wondered how it was that both everything and nothing he did mattered. He sunk to the ground next to Mrs. Benya. She patted his shoulder. It's hard work, she said, always trying to do the right thing. Soon, the hail turned to rain, the thunder grew louder, the lightning moved closer. Huddled together, wet and weary, George and Mrs. Benya watched as the first funnel cloud formed above the park. The woman felt the wind against her skin and the hard earth beneath her body. Where am I? was her first thought. Alone, I am no one, her second. And then, it all came back to her. The war, the battle, the storm. Alone, I am no one. Her eyes flew open. Every inch of her body burned and ached. Rain fell lightly against her face, and she was grateful for that simple relief. With a shaky hand, she touched the back of her head, letting her fingers crawl through the wet hair matted with blood until she found the wound a deep cut near her left temple. The others must have assumed she was dead, she thought, or dying. She held up her right hand and tapped each blood-streaked fingertip to the callous pad of her thumb. When each tap produced only a weak electrical current, she knew then that she needed to move 
or she really would die. Not here, she said. Not alone. She forced herself into a sitting position, ignoring the vertigo that blurred her vision. Little bodies hung from her locks, tangling her hair, and she brushed them away in disgust. She brought her knees close to her chest and sought solace from the storm by watching the lightning crash against the earth. Around her, dark funnels touched the ground, becoming tornadoes, ripping the earth open. Inspired, she took a deep breath as she tapped her fingers together again. Tap, tap, tap. Tap, tap, tap. Practicing, transitioning, fighting. This was all she knew of life. She saw the squat buildings surrounding the field of grass in which she sat. Ugly, she thought. What she didn't see were the two girls standing next to her left hip. She didn't see Selena try to pull Fabiola back. She didn't hear the older girl's anguished cries. She didn't even feel the tiny pair of hands that desperately grabbed at the thick flesh of her thigh. The woman stood up and stretched her arms. She could tell by the vibrations in her hands that her strength was returning. Tap, tap, tap. Tap, 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 and there it was. She flicked her fingers hard, discharging bolts of electricity that destroyed whatever was in their path. One bolt hit a house, and it burst into flames. Another exploded against the road, the pavement crumbling into a blackened pit of tar and dust. She smiled. Now... She was ready. She searched the sky, looking for the perfect tornado, the perfect return. She began to run. One step carried her away from the park. The second step brought her closer to the pond. By the third step, she saw her chance. She ran toward the largest and most powerful of the tornadoes and leaped directly into the center of its vortex. Alone, she was no one, she thought to herself. Yet, without her, there could not have been a revolution. And welcome back. It's amazing how different people's observations of an event can vary by so much. A gift from God? No, it's an abomination. It's our mother. It's a super-powered electric conductor. Touch it, touch it, go on, I dare you. Nah, maybe we should just blow it up. As much as I believe in humanity, some assholes always gotta bring a bag of rocks to the party. And with that, we segue to feedback for this week. Carolyn M. Yoakum's Tending the Mori Birds, read by Raja and Kana. A story about a man whose job charts the life and death of all the city's inhabitants through the flight of birds. We didn't get a ton of feedback on this one, but those that posted seemed to generally like it, although a few wished it was longer or saw where it was going pretty quickly. Danuli called it delightful, well, as delightful as a story about death can be. 
and I am a fish, said, short, simple, bittersweet. I love the melancholy ending. The very idea of the Mori birds was really great, and I loved how the concept was thought through so that it felt very natural in the world. Thanks very much for those comments. We always love hearing your thoughts on our stories and how we're doing in general. So please sign up at forum.escapeartist.net and let us know how you think we're doing. If you like what you're hearing here at Podcastle, please consider donating. We rely on you to bring you awesome fantasy fiction week after week. Times are tough, and to be completely honest with you all, we're feeling the economic strain here at Escape Artists, just like everyone else. This isn't a job for us. I mean, it is, but we're underpaid volunteers. But to keep bringing you great fiction week after week, we need your help. So if you can, please donate. And remember, if you've donated $50 to us since January 1st of this year, or signed up as a paid subscriber for at least $5 a month, we'll send you a new audio collection by Tim Pratt, Jen Reese, Heather Shaw, and Greg Van Eekout called The Alphabet Quartet, a collaboration of flash fiction. It's our way of saying thank you to those of you who can donate. If you can't, but want to spread the word about PodCastle, blog, tweet, or tell a friend about us. Thanks so much for all your help. That's our show for this week. On behalf of everyone here at PodCastle, Anne Leckie, Peter Wood, Anna Schwind, and myself, thanks so much for letting us share another story with you. This is Dave Thompson, reminding you that alone we're no one, but without us, there can't be a revolution. Boom! We're off to battle. See you in a week. PodCastle is a production of Escape Artists Incorporated and is distributed on a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives License. Share it, but don't change it or sell it. Our theme music is by Shiva in Exile. You can find them at magnatune.com. You can discuss this episode of PodCastle or nearly anything else on our forums. Just visit forum.escapeartist.info. And if you like science fiction or horror, be sure to visit our sister podcasts, Escape Pod and Pseudopod. And if you enjoyed this episode, tell a friend, or post your blog about it, or consider donating via the PayPal link on our site. Madonna said, I'm tough, I'm ambitious, and I know exactly what I want. If that makes me a bitch, okay. Okay.